What is going on, everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Man, it has been like a month or more since I've done my last uh, podcast um, for a couple of reasons, really. I had a couple vacations come up, um, kind of back to back. You know, the kids were getting out of school and everything. I uh, was super busy doing my normal educator stuff. And I was kind of honestly feeling like a little bit unexpired, um, or excuse me, uninspired, um, and was having a hard time coming up with what I wanted to do next. I do have a schedule for the year, but I was just not wanting to, um, not wanting to really do the next episode. I was feeling very disinterested in it. Um, but I had a call come up um, that a crew did here in California uh, that really got me deep into the books because it's a, um, a topic that we don't deal with a ton of, and it really sparked my interest again and got me kind of back into it. So uh, thanks to this crew. Um, uh, I uh, as you know, just in the interest of uh, of HIPAA, I did change a lot of the uh, details and all of that stuff. Changed the patient um, a little bit, but looking at the same diagnosis. So um, as soon as I start talking about it, I'm sure the crew will know exactly who they are because I know that they are both listeners of the podcast. So without any further ado, here we go. So you have a 35 year old female. She is a hiker. Some would some would call her a trekker. Uh, she does live near the ocean here in California. Um, for those of you that not, are not from California. Um, uh, m most people that live in California do not live near the ocean, but um, but she happens to, uh, and she is coming to my neck of the woods, way up here in Northern California, and she is going to be hiking Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta has a peak of um, 14,179 feet, and so it uh, is like a pretty tall mountain. Um, she's currently uh, with some friends and a guiding group um, during a very popular time of the year. Uh, it's right near about late March, early April, still tons of snow on the mountain. Uh, and you get tons and tons of groups that climb the mountain every weekend. Uh, typically, you can do like a one day ascent on the mountain. So it's a very, very popular climb. Um, so she's with this group. They're currently at a location called Lake Helen, which is about, it's, it's very commonly kind of reported as the halfway or, or touted as the halfway mark of the mountain. Um, and it's a big stopping point. It's where many people will pitch their base camp and, and their tent and they'll push to ascent from Lake Helen. Lake Helen has an altitude of about 10,400 feet. And she's been complaining actually for about the last 4,000 feet of the climb. She's been complaining of a headache um, that started, you know, about two hours into their climb or so. Uh, she's feeling very fatigued and she's experiencing shortness of breath now for the last several hours. Um, the crew is kind of thinking that she doesn't look very good. They don't have any like hyperbaric bags with them or anything like that. Um, and they make the decision to call for help because they started to um, hear some very obvious crackles coming from her lungs. Um, they called uh, uh, They called for air medical help. Um, there was an EMT uh, that had been climbing with another group, um, wasn't in any work capacity or anything. He doesn't have any medical equipment with him. Uh, he was really only able to kind of offer his BLS assistance, get like a heart rate and a respiratory rate and stuff like that. 
Um, unfortunately, a few minutes after her group decided to call for help, um, her mentation did begin to decline. And so you and your crew, um, you and your partner are responding by air, but you can't land at the altitude that, um, that they're at with your aircraft. So you have to coordinate with another agency, um, the California Highway Patrol here in California, obviously. Uh, uh, they operate helicopters that can um, fly up to pretty darn high altitudes. They may have to empty basically everything off of their helicopter in order to accommodate that, but, um, but they are able to get uh, you and your partner as well as at least some basic equipment to the patient's location. So first and foremost, what do you suspect is happening with this patient? And then what equipment should we be bringing to this patient's side? And so if you've spent any time at looking at altitude medicine, which I have, I mean, I grew up in a mountain town. I worked EMS in a mountain town. When I was 18, I moved to another mountain town. My apartment was at 8,000 feet. And so um, I've, I've been kind of around altitude medicine for the majority of my career, but many people probably haven't. And so one of the things that should be glaringly obvious with her is that she climbed up to altitude and she started to experience shortness of breath, um, followed by some audible crackles that people were able to hear around her. And so she has high altitude pulmonary edema. And so really what is high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE? Um, what HAPE really is, is just because of the altitude and you get that, that less density or the, that, that reduction in the density of the oxygen molecules that she's breathing in. She's still breathing in her 21% oxygen, but she's she's breathing in a less total oxygen molecules per breath. And so this leads to a hypoxia. Hypoxia is going to lead to, hyper, to uh, tachycardia. And that tachycardia, especially coming from the right side of the heart, is going to lead to some pulmonary hypertension. Once the hypertension gets bad enough, you're going to start to have some capillary leakage, and then you can develop high altitude pulmonary edema. HAPE and HACE, both the, the pathophysiology of these things is kind of incredible because we don't really know exactly how it happens. I mean, obviously we, we understand the macro principles of how it happens, but really getting down into how these two things occur on a micro level, um, we really still don't know. And I mean, I've spent the last two weeks trying to, um, look at research for, uh, for Hape and Hase and, and really the best that you can do is find kind of case studies to talk about these two things. Um, there's really not a lot of literature on it. But how do we treat HAPE? Well, obviously, descent is going to be the best thing or putting them in a hyperbaric bag or something like that. Um, but in the absence of those things, then we need to just do some oxygen therapy. And we would treat them really no differently than an isolated CHF or with like higher levels of PEEP and, and potentially CPAP or innovation. Now her level of consciousness beginning to decline is a huge key thing. You know, when you first start um, talking about altitude medicine, the first thing that should really generally come to mind is acute mountain sickness, which is very commonly referred to as just altitude sickness. And acute mountain sickness or AMS, um, you know, has a hallmark signs and symptoms of like, trouble sleeping when you're at altitude, feeling a little dizzy, feeling cold intolerance, so you're kind of feeling chilled. Um, you may have a little loss of appetite, may feel a little nauseated and fatigued. Um, now, 
all of those, if you put all of those into like the Lake Louise scale, which is the scale that you use to determine the the severity of an altitude illness, um, those would come out and basically say that they have moderate AMS or moderate acute mountain sickness. Now, as soon as you add in a decreased level of consciousness, while you can still just have more of a kind of a severe-ish form of acute mountain sickness. More than likely, you've started to develop high-altitude cerebral edema as soon as you start to become, uh, uh, or as soon as you start to deteriorate on your level of consciousness. Rather, now everybody who's at altitude, regardless of the symptoms that you have, every single person that crosses above you know ten to thirteen thousand feet has some measure of of brain swelling, has some measure of cerebral edema, um, and that's just because when you're at altitude, you are hypoxemic. I mean, if you're at twelve thousand feet for a couple hours, your SATs are going to be in the mid eighties, maybe even lower than that, um, and you're going to feel like a little short of breath. You're going to be taking those big breaths every three or four seconds, and because of that hypoxemia, you're going to have cerebral vasodilation in order to get more blood to your brain. That's going to end up causing cerebral hypertension. And because there's only so much space in there, you're going to have some sort of brain swelling. If you're putting more blood into the brain, um, the only way, um, you know, the only way to do that without increasing the pressure in the brain is to have less CSF in that area or have less brain in that area. And your body's probably not going to accommodate with either one of those things. And so with the Monroe Kelly doctrine in mind, if you're adding more blood into that space, then you're going to increase the pressure. And due to several un, really kind of unknown mechanisms, because of the, um, because of the increase in the pressure in the brain um, and the increase in the hypoxemia and probably the hypocarbia that you're having too, it ends up contributing to some capillary leakage and cerebral edema. So everybody's got a little measure of it, but if it becomes significant, then you can become really, really altered. And this patient of ours happens to be. So we know what acute mountain sickness and haste are, kind of know what causes it, I guess. It's really the root causes the hypoxemia, but how do we treat it? Um, like it's kind of open-ended how we treat haste. I mean, obviously we need to descend, but this is really where my big hangup was for even putting this episode out is that the literature out there really sucks when it comes to treating high-altitude cerebral edema. Um, we know that taking... Um, prophylactically taking medications like acetazolamide will greatly reduce the swelling that you have um, and greatly reduce the chances that you'll have haste. But once you've developed it, um, what do we do? And like really the only thing that's in the literature other than treating their hypoxia and placing them into a hyperbaric chamber um, there's like nothing out there other than um, giving them some like dexamethasone, uh, which many aircrafts don't carry. Uh, and so there's just not a whole lot of information about what to do. And so that's why I think that this case is so fascinating because we don't really have a ton of options for this patient. And, um, and so I think that it's a great thing to bring to the table. And unfortunately, as I progress through this case, I don't think I'm going to have a lot of answers for you guys. Um, and I might have more questions than answers uh, uh, by the end of this thing. Um, and so I encourage everybody, if, if anybody out there collectively has, um, has some amazing literature or firsthand knowledge of these things, please reach out to me. So you and your partner load up 
in uh, the CHP aircraft, you guys take a basic, um, you know, kind of your basic equipment. You take your airway bag, um, you take your medications with you, you take your cardiac monitor, you take some fluid and stuff like that. But um, you don't take like the whole aircraft because you you just can't, they can't take the weight. They won't be able to land with all of that stuff on board, considering that they're also going to have to be taking a patient. So you guys load up, um, you get onto the scene, you're able to land right there at Lake Helen and you find the patient to be unresponsive. Um, so that's even a worse change than what you guys had uh, heard um, during your initial report. Um, she appears to have vomited, and the EMT is doing his best to place her in the left lateral recumbent position and to clear her airway. He does tell you that she doesn't have any allergies, but she does have a history of seizures when she was like 19. She hasn't had a seizure since she was 20. And the only medication she takes is phenotone to control her seizures, um, uh, of which she hasn't had one in 15 years. You guys are actually um, going to be doing some basic treatment at right then and there, and then you were planning on loading her up, but the pilot comes over on the HT and says, hey guys, I just popped a chip light, I've got to shut down. And you guys are like, well shit, now we're stranded at 10,000 feet with a helicopter that can't fly me anywhere, and we've got a patient that's unresponsive and looks like crap. Um, the pilot tells you that they're going to contact the other CHP helicopter and get them up here as soon as possible, um, but they are currently flying uh, traffic uh, in another county, and it could take about an hour for them to get there. You and your partner kind of look at each other, and you're like, all right, well, let's just do what we can do then. And you guys look at the patient and your initial impression of the patient is that she looks like shit. Uh, she's got a little bit of vomit on the side of her face. Didn't look like she had aspirated because the EMT was kind of on top of it when she did start to vomit. Um, you guys start to get some of her excess clothing off just to do a physical exam on her. Um, and you place her on the cardiac monitor. She has a heart rate of 119. She's got a respiratory rate of 31. Her oxygen saturation is 74% um, uh, on room air. She's got a blood pressure of 155 over 98. She's got an entitled CO2 of 27. You guys can hear obvious bilateral crackles, but you check lung sounds anyway, and she has, you guessed it, bilateral crackles um, throughout. So what are our priorities for treatment for this patient? Because we can't just simply descend here, right? Which is almost the curative medicine for this for this woman. At least we suspect because we suspect that she has hape and haste. Her friends do say that she did have a little bit of diarrhea about three days ago and um, uh, took some ciprofloxacin as well for her for this gastroenteritis that she had had it, and I got it just from a walk-in clinic. Um, but other than that, uh, she doesn't have any real obvious issues that we can place onto our differential. Um, blood sugar comes back at 192. So we've got to stay in play for this patient until we can get another helicopter up there. So what are we going to do? And hopefully most of you are like, well, obviously we're going to try to intubate this woman. She's unresponsive. She just vomited. So she's not managing her secretions well. She's not protecting her airway. And she's got a saturation of 74%, which isn't really that abnormal at an altitude like that. But, you know, we, we want to improve that because that's probably the root of her main issues. And then the patient has a seizure. And here's really like our first question. Do we treat that seizure? Um, if we are going to treat it, what do we treat it with? 
there is literally no literature out there to say like whether we should treat the seizure immediately or not. Um, and like I said, I mean, over the last like two weeks, I think I've read uh, right around a dozen case studies um, ranging from like recent times all the way back to the mid 90s. And that's essentially all the literature that there is on this subject of seizures at high altitude. And almost every single um, piece of documentation that I can find are with patients who generally have a seizure history at some point um, that is like well controlled with medication. Uh, but there are several cases too that um, that I read where the seizures were contributed or were contributed to or attributed to rather um, their potential for their high altitude cerebral edema. So let's talk it out about the seizure. So I mean, I think that it's pretty obvious that if they do start seizing and it self limits within 30 seconds before you can even um, get medications on board, then maybe we don't have to start pushing a bunch of drugs for this seizures. But um, really, the medication that we're going to give to control these seizures would be like a benzodiazepine generally like Versed or whatever you carry, um, or midazolam rather. Um, but we do know that benzos tend to contribute to a slight lowering of cerebral oxygenation. And that's kind of the root of her problems right now. So um, it, it's hard to say whether or not, you know, that's the that's the immediate right thing to do. And I mean, and, and I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do at all. There's just no literature to, to say one way or the other whether, you know, whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Um, but the crew in this instance does decide because the seizure is lasting um, about a minute uh, so far, the crew is like, hey, you know what? We need to get her under control. She's already hypoxic. And they go ahead and give her four milligrams of her sed um, and start looking toward an intubation. Her seizures do subside um, very quickly after this IV versed that she got. So the crew gets her on a bag valve mask. They start doing some oxygenation. They do have um, just one portable oxygen tank. And so the crew is like, hey, you know what? Let's at least move her toward the aircraft, the non-functional aircraft. So that way, at least we can use the onboard oxygen from the aircraft. And so they all collectively as a group move this patient toward there while they're trying to ventilate her um, with the bag valve mask. As soon as they get to the, to the aircraft, they're able to hook up to the onboard and use this tank. So they're able to do a proper pre-ox on this patient with a cannula and a bag valve mask and everything else. And her, actually her oxygen saturation comes up to about 85% relatively quickly. But the crew was nervous about running out of oxygen um, with their two oxygen sources. And they were thinking that at the altitude that they were at, they would have a difficult time getting their oxygen saturation up. And so they decided to intubate when the oxygen saturation was about 85%. During the intubation, the oxygen saturation stayed in the mid 80s. Um, and she was able to be intubated with a 7.0 ET tube, 21 centimeters at the lip. Um, and they were able to place her on a ventilator. Now she has an ideal body weight of 60 kilos. They initially put her on assist control volume with a tidal volume of 480, so 8 mLs per kilo. Uh, respiratory rate um, was 20. Um, and that was in the interest of maintaining her pre-innovation 
CO2 that she had. Her pre-innovation CO2 was about 27. Um, her her pre-innovation, you know, end tidal CO2 was 27. Uh, so they placed her up on a respiratory rate of 20 to to try to maintain that. Um, PEEP of eight, FiO2 is 80%, and an I time is one second. Her initial PIPs were 39, and her plateau pressure was 34. So why are her pressures so damn high? So first and foremost, if you see a high PIP and a high plat, well compliance is kind of the on the forefront of my mind we've got to dope the tube we've got to make sure it's not right main stemmed um, and so they're looking at the tube it's very clearly not dislodged they had a great view they've got great inside co2 um, there's no reason to believe that they have any obstructions in the lung um, I, the crew actually um, did opt to suction the tube a little bit to make sure that there were no obstructions. Uh, uh, there's no pneumo, no equipment failure, none of that stuff. Um, it's an appropriate depth uh, on the tube and the little radiopaque black mark went right past her vocal cords and they stopped there. So I mean, it's very unlikely that they would be right main stemmed. Um, and so it wasn't a dope problem. It wasn't a right main stem problem. And so because of those two things, we kind of only are left with like, it's a compliance problem in the lung causing these really high pressures. Um, and that makes sense because her static compliance when they did their inspiratory hold came back at 19, which is like freaking awful. And so we're aiming for like, you know, 40 to 50. So, um, so her static compliance is 19. And remember that your static compliance is just your tidal volume divided by your delta pressure. Your delta pressure is your plateau pressure minus your PEEP. So she has a PEEP-plat of 34. Um, she's got an, a PEEP of 8, so her delta pressure is 26. And if you take her tidal volume of 480 and divide it by 26, you get 19, um, and that's her static compliance. And what static compliance really is, is it's saying for every centimeter of water pressure that I put into that ET tube, I will be getting 19 milliliters of tidal volume. So that's what a static compliance of 19 is. And so that's why we would prefer it to be closer to like 50, because if we could say like, hey, we want a tidal volume of like 500 or whatever it is, and we have a and we have a static compliance of 50, then that means that we would over the top of our peep, we would only have to put 10 centimeters of water pressure into that circuit in order to get the tidal volume that we're looking for. And so that would be totally normal, right? Those are your patients who you've got like a peep of eight, their pips are 22, and their plateau pressure is 18, right? And so that would mean that that patient had a static compliance of 50. At any rate, 19 sucks. So these pressures are hella high and it makes total sense. She's got like really sucky pulmonary edema, right? She's got that hape. And so um, we're going to treat it just like we would a CHF or we're going to go down on her volume a little bit and we're going to go up on her peep a little more than a little bit um, in order to kind of combat that. And so the um, the crew uh, reduces her tidal volume from 480 down to 420. Um, so it gets her down to seven mLs per kilo. And over the course of about 20 minutes, um, they increase her PEEP up to 12. Uh, her PIPs are now coming in at 32 and her plat is now 27. So she's kind of rocking and rolling in that moment. She's in a good spot. Um, her heart rate is now 108. Her blood pressure is 149 over 100. Respiratory rate is still at 20, what they had set it at. Um, her oxygen saturation has come up to 86%, and then she's got an entitled CO2 at 25. Um, it's been about 25 or 30 minutes since the intubation now. Um, they've got some uh, sedation hanging. They, they hung a, a ketamine drip on her at 2 milligrams um, per kilo per hour. Uh, 
And then you get the word that H-16, that the other CHB helicopter is about 10 minutes out. And you and your partner are like, thank baby Jesus. Uh, and then your patient seizes again. All right. Now she's trying to like freaking die on us. And this is super annoying. So why is she seizing and what are we going to do about it? And so the next few minutes, just keep in mind that these are just food for thought things. This is absolutely not medical advice in 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 any way in this podcast because there's really like no literature out there to support anything. And so um, I really just use your best clinical judgment. Please reach out to your medical directors and all of that good stuff. But in my mind, I think that there's probably three reasons that she's seizing. The first and foremost is that her seizure threshold is obviously lowered because of her hypoxia, right? And so um, that's like the number one cause of seizures in human beings. And so um, let's like work to get her sats above 90%. Uh, there's Even though she's at altitude, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Because she's hooked up to a closed circuit with an oxygen tank that has 100% oxygen that's pressurized. So like we can get her sats up um, uh, with some PEEP and FiO2. Um, her seizure threshold is also probably lowered because of the hypocarbia. Remember that she was only hypocarbic. She was, she only had that low end tidal CO2 because she was hyperventilating because of her hypoxia. I mean, she's probably not like acidotic or anything like that. I mean, granted, like some weird thing could be going on totally. Um, but Low CO2 can cause seizure activity as well, especially in an epileptic, it lowers their seizure threshold. And so we may need to look at that. And then finally, her haste, her cerebral edema is probably a contributing factor to her seizure. And so can we do something about all three of those things? Totally. Should we do something about all three of those things? I really don't know. Um, at least with the oxygenation side, I would say that I'm very comfortable and very safe working to get her oxygen saturation well above 90%. And so we're going to continue to increase her PEEP and her FiO2 in order to attain that goal. Um, I would be pretty darn comfortable reducing her respiratory rate a little bit to let her CO2 come up, you know, at least above 30. Now, granted, if she does have significant cerebral edema and it's causing like a herniation syndrome, she has, um, she has unilateral blown pupil or something like that. Um, you know, keeping her CO2s down are is also going to help <laughs> to reduce her her herniation, reduce reduce her cerebral edema. So, um, so I wouldn't want maybe to normalize her CO2 up to forty, but you know, bringing it to from like twenty four or twenty five up to you know thirty, thirty two, thirty three, I would be a, much more comfortable with that. Um, and then we finally come to option C, why she's seizing. It's her cerebral edema. And do we treat that? And and I, and I think that that's the, the one thing that the literature supports really well is giving something like dexamethasone um, to reduce the swelling, uh, you know, giving like eight milligrams or something like that. But most of us don't carry dex in the field, um, at least in my own organization, you know, we will carry like methylprednisolone. Um, 
which is not really looked at in the literature very much. There was a side-by-side -side study for acute mountain sickness between just regular prednisolone and uh, dexamethasone, and they showed very equal results versus a placebo. They greatly reduced um, symptoms of AMS, um, but specifically solumedrol has not been looked at. And so um, if you don't carry dexamethasone, which is kind of the recommended medication in the literature, then I'm not really sure exactly where that leaves us um, because there's nothing supported. What about like 3% saline um, for that patient? And this is, again, something that I don't have a, a lot of answers to. And I would love for anybody who knows, you know, knows this subject a lot better than I do to, to reach out in my email um, and let me know what you think. And I'll totally uh, do a follow-up and answer the question. But um, something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of that call is like, man, what about 3% saline? I mean, if you look at this patient who has cerebral edema, she has this um, hypoxia, um, this hypoxemia, which is causing her cerebral vasoconstriction, um, which is causing cerebral hypervolemia um, and causes her cerebral edema, but she's also going to be retaining a lot of fluid in order to accommodate the vascular dilation in her body. So she's going to be creating a dilutional hyponatremia um, uh, in, in which another thing supported in the literature is the most HACE, patient, most, most HACE patients are, um, are hyponatremic when they get to the receiving facility. And so is something like hypertonic saline, like 3%, would that be beneficial for her, especially because if you look at the progression, the timeline progression of death with altitude medicine, you go from acute mountain sickness to haste to coma to brain herniation and death. And if is a medical brain herniation any really different from a traumatic bleeding herniation syndrome um, as far as you know, the treatment being hypertonic um, saline? And I don't think that it is. I think that 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 a three percent saline would be really beneficial for this patient. Um, you know, keeping in mind that that the last thirty seconds of this podcast are not backed up by any medical science whatsoever, um, and uh, and it's really just food for thought. And I would you know I would love for uh, each of you guys to talk to your own individual medical directors and see what they think about it, um, and let me know because I would um, I would really really like to know. Um, but as far as this scenario goes, they um, they actually were able to uh, get the helicopter there. They were able to load this patient up really without any other incident. Um, her seizures were self-limiting, but she did continue to have seizures throughout the call, um, and uh, and they were able to get her to the hospital. This patient's um, sodium level at the hospital was 125, um, and so uh, definitely a, a, a hyponatremia. Whether it was dilutional or not, um, I do not know. This patient's obviously, you know, lost a follow-up, but, um, but a very, very fascinating case, uh, that we don't deal with a ton. And it really left me with like tons and tons of questions. And so, uh, like I said, if you guys have the answers, I would, um, I would absolutely love to hear from you guys um, at my email at kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys in two weeks.